1: I first met Liam McAvoy in Luxembourg. We were at an acting class together at GFCA Luxembourg. When we met, he'd just left his job to focus on films and photography and his career in the film industry. Now, three years later, he's just shot and directed his first film, entitled Spirit of the Game. Hello, Liam. How are you?
0: I'm great today. How are you?
1: Good. So the whole idea of the podcast that I am setting up is to give creative people an insight into how you got where you are and some of the struggles you faced um so i kind of wanted to go back to what inspired you to become a filmmaker what do you think do you think it was a specific person or a, a life event that happened
0: uh, i would say it's very specifically uh when the lord of the rings came out i think it was even even more specifically after they released the the fellowship of the Rings, so the first movie on dvd they released a box set with an extended edition of the movie but with that came a very very extensive behind the scenes look and, and the making of the the lord of the rings and when i was watching that it was a period of my life where uh, i was being homeschooled so i wasn't in public schooling and really i had to come up with a kind of a at least a path, uh, like a a genre of of a career that I wanted to get into because I knew I was going to have to go to a college. So really specify. At that point in time, I was playing ice hockey quite a lot in junior ice hockey. So my initial sort of career path that I thought I wanted to do would be in physiotherapy. And then I got injured playing ice hockey and had to do physiotherapy myself. I had to get physiotherapy on my neck. And when I was in the physiotherapy, my first thought was, oh my god this hurts so much I don't know if I have it in me to hurt other people like this even if I knew it was for their benefit so that kind of put me off doing anything uh, medical or physio kind of related and then when this Lord of the Rings behind the scenes came out and I've always loved the Lord of the Rings the books from uh, from when I was a kid Uh, the movies are also fantastic and then watching this behind the scenes seeing them flying in a helicopter up to the mountains the alps in uh, in New Zealand and then you know shooting a fantasy movie a, you know a book that i love with all these you know gadgets cameras and then wearing costumes and the whole is basically bringing a fantasy a childhood dream to reality and i just thought that, is, that looks like the coolest job on the world to do that and from that moment uh, i decided to, to look for a career Uh, within the film industry.
1: Wow, that's really cool that you have one specific moment. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting you to say when I watched Lord of the Rings. Do you think there was a specific person that shaped you growing up that said, you know, you can do this? Or or was there someone completely the opposite that said, no, don't go for this, you can't do it?
0: Uh, No, I've I've never had anyone in my life that has encouraged me against uh, pursuing it. The one person that I would almost certainly go to as my main backer is my mum. You know, she, we we come from a, a little bit of a background within media. My grandmother used to work for RTL in Luxembourg. She was a, I think she was a floor manager for for several years there, and she was actually my kind of first entry into the business, where I did a, a two week internship at RTL before I moved to England to to start the studies. And that, you know, I really enjoyed that so much, where I thought, okay, yeah, this is definitely the path I want to be on. I think there's there's always people who doubt certain ideas mm. certain things that you'd certain films or projects you want to come up with but I've never really had anyone to say no the the industry's not for you or you know don't go for it or play it safe I think I've been really lucky in that kind of sense.
1: So the women in your life really shaped what you do now is there a female director you look up to or an actress you've worked with that you'd think oh I'd love to work with them again?
0: Director not necessarily I've worked with one One female director that stands out, uh, if I remember how to pronounce her name, I think it's uh, Haifa Al-Mansur. She was the director of Mary Shelley, uh, which was a a film that came out, I believe, two years ago, starring Elle Fanning uh, and Douglas Booth. And that was was the story. Obviously, Mary Shelley is a very kind of female-empowering storyline, basically. So Mary Shelley, the writer of Frankenstein. Who had to battle the, the you know the, the preconceptions of her time to uh, to be allowed to publish a book at all, let alone a, uh, a book with so much deep storylines about death and uh, things like that and science. So yeah, I would say I would say high five, that that film in general. Mary Shelley was very female driven. the the producer the lead producer of the film was uh, late an American lady or Canadian yeah. by the name of Amy Bear think she used to be the CEO of one of the major television networks in the United States I can't remember which one and then the editor was also female yeah uh her name was god she's gonna kill me for forgetting it no
1: you, you could have stopped there yeah, it was also female it, yes, her yes her name was, was.
0: Uh, oh. Mackie and I know I know her family <laughs> name is Mackie her, her first name god she's gonna kill me but it's, it's escaping me at the moment but but yeah the, that film in general the, the most of the key roles were women and yeah. and yeah, going back to your original question, the women in my life have paid, played uh, a very important role. And uh, what be- you do. Yes, because I have two sisters uh, and, and I grew up with my mum and my two sisters mostly from, from the age of about 12 onwards.
1: Yeah, I remember when I first met you and you, that was when you were working on Mary Shelley, which I think was called A Storm in the Stars at the time. And it was just so exciting to see all these people around Luxembourg, you know, like to come out of wherever and be like, oh my God, <laughs> there's Douglas Booth. So I wanted to know, what was your drive behind making making films? So when you were editing, do you think there was a point you went to, oh, I want to make my own films now, a motivational force behind that?
0: Do you mean where when I was working full-time? Yeah. Well, there, there was never a single point where, where I decided, certainly back then when I was working full-time, that I was going to make my own movie. Uh, I think everyone coming out of film school wants to be a director i think ever or or an actor an actress everyone goes into the industry with ideas of creating some this is my personal opinion but i don't think anyone goes in expecting or hoping to become an assistant yeah and that's really the kind of role that that i found myself in was an an assistant editor an assistant you know a visual effects assistant here and there within the post-production industry it was something that it's not that I didn't enjoy it uh, or I didn't feel proud of the work that I did in the, the seven or eight years that I was full time uh, at the company I worked for. But I just felt like at a certain point it was not fulfilling me creatively enough. As an assistant, you're essentially making sure that everything runs smoothly from a technical standpoint. You yeah. don't really have a creative input in how a film is shaped or you know the storyline or anything like that or types of shots that you take. Mm. So I was really becoming quite bored of yeah. the you know the day to day grind of that and so it just it just became natural like over time i just decided you know now's the time to really branch out on my own and get back to what really got me into it which was like i said with the lord of the rings becoming a, a director and really telling a story myself and being in the thick of the action not just on the outside yeah. or behind the computer screen and making sure that all the amazing stuff and all the amazing stories that other people are telling works correctly i want to be one of the tellers
1: did you did you go to university for this? What did you study at university?
0: Yes, uh, I've I've studied media actually about five years of it. I, the, I first went to Highbury College in Portsmouth, where I did a kind of entry level diploma in media and uh, moving image media. So it was television studio based work, also a b- little bit of video editing, ri- uh, script writing for document or script writing in general, documentary production. Uh, but then after. Portsmouth I moved to Staffordshire University and that was film production technology so that was really no longer television based or kind of script writing or anything theoretical it was very much the technical side in terms of again editing or dvd programming
1: so how did you end up in luxembourg then
0: well i am luxembourgish i'm half luxembourgish by nationality my mother was born raised in luxembourg she is you know full-blood Luxembourger who married my father who's english from newcastle so we have that i have that connection already to luxembourg through my family and then when my parents divorced in 2000 there was basically choice of where to where to go and we had a lot of support or offers of support in luxembourg for for my mother who's at that point going to become a single mother with three children. So financially and, and you know s- emotionally, support-wise, that was the best option to move to Luxembourg. So that's how I ended up there.
1: Okay. For those independent filmmakers out there uh, that are just getting started, what would you say were the hardest roadblocks you faced?
0: Well, absolutely the financial side. It's very, very expensive. If you're going to be an, uh, an indie filmmaker in the, in the fashion that I am, where you shoot yourself, edit yourself, record all the audio... It becomes very, very expensive because you know the equipment in itself, and then you're you're talking about the equipment, the education of how to learn how to use everything. So you're you're paying for tutorials, you're going to workshops, all these kind of things. All this material breaks over time, or you know you lose parts of things, so they need replacing. Or the more you learn how to to do a certain task, the more you invest in you know higher end gear so mm-hmm. you might start out like i have i started out using a, a little canon 600d dslr camera for 400 pounds so st- starting out learning how to use that properly and then from that point on once you're very very comfortable with that you make a little bit of money and then you have to kind of upgrade and it's this constant upgrading of yeah. equipment and material to be, to get to that next professional stage where you're productions are really at a, at a higher quality so definitely financial side the other major major roadblock is a motivational side because you you come out of this if, if you're going directly from say college or university into independent scene you're going from this really really structured environment where you have teachers who have planned out specifically what you're going to learn, when you're going to learn it, what times you have to get up in the morning to be at college. And then you have a very, very specific date. You have your exams or your, your end of year production and those dates are, and goals are set for you. And that's something I think that when you're in university and college that you, you really, you, you, you don't understand how easy it is until that's not that structure is not there for you and you have to make it yourself. So definitely the roadblock is starting out, making sure that you set your own goals and that you stick to them as well.
1: So that would be your advice to people that want to get into filmmaking.
0: Absolutely. I, one of the things that became really, really useful for me was to start. Uh, I, I bought some whiteboards that I s- put up on the wall at home and start writing down first kind of major goals that you want to achieve. Even if it's something crazy like uh, in, in 20 years time, I, would l- I want to win an Oscar for best sim- cinematography that's something that you can have on there as something a, a dream that you can reach towards and then you can work your way backwards and break it down and say, okay how do i need, what do i need to do to get to that point point? and then on the other side you need your day-to-day and your week-to-week and month-to-month plans and goals and targets and then also be flexible enough that you know you can have your your daily plan but you can't plan for everything you know f- something goes wrong or something takes longer than it's expected so you need to meet, make sure you're flexible in your in your plan yeah that structure needs to still be there to to know because also one of the hardest things uh, when you're independent and and working for yourself is that you you have this feeling that you're never never achieving anything so if you have all these goals listed up and you can tick them off on a box when you go back and look and you go wow okay i've achieved all of this even just today or last week that can really give you a sense of okay i've completed something and that really helps in the times where you won't need to relax
1: yeah, I do that even with like the the silliest things like cleanse. I had one healthy meal, but then I I at least I I ticked something off.
0: Exactly, and that and can be simple as uh, make your bed. Uh, I think film schools, universities, for me, the purpose of them is like I was saying, it's to it, it's really to bring you into this industry in a structured environment. Mm-hmm. They they certainly have their place uh, in the industry. Because not only do you have the the education that you get from it, the teachers and access to all the you know the knowledge of different people, but you may get a lot of contacts in the industry uh, through your course. And also, it's it's kind of it's a free opportunity to get access to professional equipment, or let's not say free, but cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're if you're doing a course, even if it's nine thousand pounds per per year, and you have access to an Ari Alexa, which you know retails at forty eight thousand pounds or 48000 euros you know it pays for itself just having access to that camera and being able to learn how to use it okay so absolutely i so i'm i'm very I'm very much pro film school but i don't think it's 100% necessary you certainly if you can get an an apprenticeship on a film set then you you're also going to learn what you need to do so it's not crucial
1: i found that with drama school it was really important to meet people that was Um, one of my main things which you can do quite a lot of places by volunteering or well drinking (laughs) so many different options because drama school was really good in terms of giving me substance and that I went there and and people respected that like oh you went to drama school as opposed to you've just moved over here and think you can do it you know then at the end of it you're kind of left and uh, to make your own way still as if you had just moved here
0: i f- i feel like in, in the industry the film industry there's, there's often a little bit of prejudice again even against people that come through film school because sometimes you get the this notion that oh they went to film school they think they know it all and yeah. sure you do have people who come up to film school thinking they know it all and it it almost does give you that kind of false sense of security because when you once you arrive on a film set uh, it is a completely different world if you if you have a way into the industry from the film set directly then there's going to be experiences and things that you you simply can't learn at film school but on the flip side there's also a lot of education that you miss by going directly because if you have an apprenticeship you know you're going to be learning from one person almost exclusively Mm. that person might not be the best cameraman in the world they may have a lot of uh, bad habits that you're going to pick up whereas when you're in a film school environment you're take able to take knowledge from a lot of various sources yeah. and make your own way
1: Can you tell me what the greatest moment in your career today date was?
0: Uh, well, the greatest moment in my career it's, it's a multi, multi-faceted answer Go for from, it <laughs> from, the, from the standpoint of a filmmaker, an independent filmmaker unquestionably the, the greatest single moment was uh, the, the end of the premiere of The Spirit of the Game because that was being in front of two or 180 people that were either involved in the film or they were friends of mine. Uh, and being in the front of that cinema and the applause and really the reaction, seeing people in the audience crying yeah. uh, at certain parts of the film. And that's, that was really kind of an overwhelming feeling to... To experience that kind of wave of affection from people, the people I cared most about. So that is a filmmaker, certainly that moment in terms of like in terms of my full time job as a assistant editor, meeting some of the celebrities that I got to, some of my heroes and idols, like working with uh, Hugo Weaving and even Elle Fanning, who I who I really appreciated as an actress. From Maleficent, when she was working with uh, Angelina Jolie and uh, some other actor actresses, and one um, one director of photography called Tom Stern, who was the director of photography for I think it was Changeling with uh, Clint Eastwood and mm-hmm. Angelina Jolie. Or either way, he's very very much a, a Academy Award nominated director of photography and a fantastic guy as well, full of uh, great stories and amusing nicknames oh really <laughs> yes uh i he, he gave me the nickname basement boy
1: basement boy is uh, that because you're in the basement editing
0: the yeah, the story behind that nickname was uh it was my actually my first real feature film production was uh a french belgian luxembourg co-production called nuit blanche which uh translates basically to sleepless night and it's, a, it's an action film. So the, the premise of the film is a very, very simple undercover cop busts a, a, a drug transfer and hides the hides the drugs for himself. And then in retaliation, the drug dealer takes his, kidnaps his son. So the majority of this film is, is kind of a little bit like Taken slash Die Hard. And it all takes place in this giant nightclub. And essentially for, what, for that shoot, we rented out an old casino in the center of Brussels. And converted it into this nightclub through through set design and everything. So anyway, my role in the film as assistant editor and and data wrangler. I need to be close to the set but not on the set because I'm there at my computer. I need I need uh, a quiet room to be able to synchronize the sound and everything. So the only place that they had space for me uh, on this set was really down in the basement of the this this casino. So there's no windows, no lights, well there's lights, but no windows, no natural light. And I was there for twelve to fourteen hours a day, so you would only just see me pop out sporadically to either get something to eat or drink, or to you know deliver something to the set that they needed to check. And so Tom Stern affectionately uh, referred to me as the basement boy. And every time I would come to set after a couple of days, he'd start saying, "Who let you out?"
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny.
0: So he's a, he was a really nice guy.
1: Do you have any more anecdotes like that? Like um, that's one of the things I always wonder. If you were on Graham Norton's red chair. What story would you tell?
0: Uh, there, There's so many, because film sets are like nothing else in the world. All right, Th- this uh, this is a story about uh, an Irish-Luxembourg co-production called Standby. Uh, and it's not necessarily an on-set, on-set story, but a lot, of, a lot of what also goes into making a film is the travel, because you're always going from set to set, location to location. So we had just finished filming the Luxembourgish half of, of the film, and we were moving to Dublin. And I had we, the last couple of days of that Luxembourg shoot were night shoots. So I was almost completely out of sync in terms of, uh, you know, my sleep pattern and everything like that. I would just finished working a night and we were leaving the next morning. I'm half dead. I meet up with the four Luxembourgish members of the crew who are moving to Dublin for the for the second part of the shoot. And we, we're flying out from Brussels, and Brussels is about a two to two-and-a-half-hour drive from Luxembourg. So we know we're, we're getting picked up at a hotel and driven in one minibus up to Charleroi to the airport. So we're sitting around waiting, and we're you know, it's getting late. The, the minibus is still not there, and we were supposed to leave about 20 minutes ago. And then one of us gets a phone call to say, we've got a big, big problem. The driver has never driven a minibus before. He never mm. driven this particular minibus he put diesel into the petrol engine so this minibus is gone we're out the backup plan okay two of the other crew are going to come in their personal cars and we're going to drive or sorry three cars we're going to go in a c- uh, convoy up to charleroi altogether. we're quite nervous now we're, we're pushing pushing time yeah. to get there we're driving up the motorway we're driving really really fast probably much faster than we're supposed to be driving until about, we're about uh, 30 minutes out from Charleroi Airport. And uh, we've got about an hour before the gate closes. We're the last car in the convoy of three and we get a puncture. So you hear the uh, tire flapping against the against the road. We have to pull over. And the other two can't stop because it's a motorway or they don't notice. So they keep going. And I think they also made the decision, let's get at least our passengers to the airport before yeah. we worry about the other two. Yeah. So we're sitting at the side of the road I personally was not super anxious because I knew, like, you know, there's nothing I can do until, you know, someone comes and pick us up. So don't get agitated. Anyway, the driver of one of the other convoys has to rush to the airport, drop them off, speed back on the motorway, get off the next exit, come back, pick us up. They pick us up. We get, we're driving extremely fast. At this point, I get very nervous because it's driving faster than really, really we should be doing. We get to the airport and we check in with literally a few seconds before they shut the gate. Because I know with, with Ryanair or because I know with Budget Airlines, if you're not there on the dot, they shut the gate even if you're in the line. Yeah, good so, old Ryanair. <laughs> so, so we just made it to that to, to that flight. Made it over there. And then in in the spirit of, of the film being called Standby, which is essentially a story based around a woman who ends up on standby in dublin uh, on a flight from paris to new york and then just so happens to run into you know the long lost love of her life from eight years ago and then the whole story surrounds that her being on standby and then with my own travel our own travel adventures going there it was then compounded on the way back because again we were in dublin for a week we were shooting almost exclusively nights in uh, in temple bar and so we, I think it was we wrapped on a Friday night and rap, we had the wrap party Friday night, which was open bar. In Temple Bar. In Temple Bar. Oh, shoot. Because
1: uh, in a Temple Bar have 14 Euro Guinnesses.
0: Yes, and it was free. Yeah. So everything was free. We're there and I'm there with uh, with Brian Gleeson uh, and uh, a few other a- actresses and, and actors and things. And we're really just kind of letting off steam because we've now worked... Two months on this movie, doing some really, really hard shoots, night shoots on the weekend in Temple Bar, as you can imagine how complicated that is. Yeah. Also shooting at Dublin Airport. So we finished, we're, we're letting off steam at this wrap party, and for some reason, someone in production decided it would be a good idea to book our flight to return 8 a.m. after the wrap party. Aww. I'm at the wrap party, nicely nicely uh, intoxicated. I get back to the hotel, I know, okay, right, minibus is going to pick us up at about 630 you, can't, you don't don't risk going to sleep, pack your bags and go down, sit in the lobby, because if you fall asleep, someone's going to see you, so I, I sit down on the bed, pack my gear next thing I know, I wake up, I look at the clock, and it's 9.30 I start rushing around, panicking I'm still very drunk at this point, because I've not had a chance to even sleep off of the alcohol I'm trying to figure out, well, what, what am I going to do and then it kind of dawned on me, well your plane has already left, so why are you rushing around, but now <laughs> it's now it's like, oh god, oh god, I have to it's Sunday morning, it's like I think at 9am everyone else from the Irish side they all have been partying all night so there's no way I'm going to get any one of them on the phone I have to call my boss in Luxembourg try and get them on the phone 9, 10am and say I'm really sorry but I've missed the flight home can you book another flight for for later today there was no other flights so it had to be the next morning so they had to put another night uh, in the 4 or 5 star hotel that we were in uh, next to the Aviva Stadium uh, so it cost a lot of money for me to to miss that flight on the way back yeah and then the story kind of continues a little bit even more because obviously we get to the next the next night and the f- this is the same time flight a morning flight so now i'm so nervous about missing it i don't dare go to sleep so i buy i buy a six pack of red bull and i'm sitting <laughs> in my room drinking red bulls having cold showers Doing everything I can to make sure I don't fall asleep, and then I eventually I do go down to the lobby and I sit there with buzzing eyes with also still kind of nursing a hangover from the night before. Aww. get picked up, get on the flight, still got thumping headache all the way there. and then because obviously there's no one to pick me up from the crew in, in Charleroi, I have to get bus. So I have to wait for this bus. It's another another hour. Get on the the, the coach to take me down to Luxembourg. I'm very, very, very tired at this point because I've not slept. I get off in Luxembourg, my mom's there to pick me up, she says hi, close the door, drive off, or the bus drives off, and then I go, where's my backpack? Uh. So I (laughs) had left my backpack on the coach, so then the next part of that adventure is, oh we've got to call up the, now we've got to call up the bus company, we've got to find out where the bus goes, and that particular bus, its route goes from Charleroi to Luxembourg to Frankfurt. So I'm like, okay, it's another four hours before that bus is going to come back. And then eventually eventually we go home. I kind of take a nap, freshen up a little bit, go back and get my bag. But that was the the travel adventures of Standby.
1: Yeah, God, that sounds like a movie in itself.
0: Exactly. A a, a long story, but it's just kind of like a microcosm of all these little things. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Yeah. (laughs) On a film set with so many things that need to go right.
1: (laughs) Um one of the things with the spirit of the game when I watched it I found it really inspirational obviously you chose to start at the moment where they were at the lowest where you think I want this to be an inspirational movie or did you have a theme set out what were you hoping for
0: no there was there was no I'll be completely honest there was no real plan or even intention to make it a full-length feature film it really started with just filming games and put, putting them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just trying to, to build up the brand a little bit of the puckers and ice hockey and Luxembourg in general because mm. one of the things we struggle the most with is the financial aspect and trying to get as many people to come to the games, spend money so that we can improve the club. So that's really where it, it started, just filming those, those games and then I think it was probably about halfway through the year halfway through the season of the movie where I realized, wow, there's actually quite a story with this group, you know, with all the different nationalities, all the different ages. And I thought, I realized, wow, it's it's really a unique team. So then, you know, I've got all, I've got a kind of natural storyline there and I have all this, almost a hundred hours of game footage throughout that season and some from the previous. This is not something that I can do. I don't have the the consistent free time to make a, a series. So that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to try and mold this into a, into a documentary. Mm. And then in terms of the structure of the film, it really does just kind of, it's really quite chronological, just follows from start to finish. And then one thing I was very conscious of is that I, I didn't want it to be too ice hockey based because I wanted to really reach a broader audience and be able to entertain and, and draw in people who have no interest in ice hockey or certainly no previous knowledge of ice hockey and either through this film they either become a fan of hockey in general and they'll want to know more and they'll go out and find out all the information they need to or they'll become a fan of the puckers in general and then they'll come to the games and they'll learn more about hockey through that rather than me just saying you know these are the rules and this is what ice hockey is it's it was really less about the the hockey itself and more about the group the people and and who they are and why they're so different from any other team
1: there's such strong characters in that film i thought it was lovely because they said it themselves there's 19 nationalities the average age at the beginning was 42 by the end 44 and it seemed like the film was really a collaborative process how how did you get everyone together because i know you also um have a scene with the wives talking about how what a struggle it can be on on family life when someone is so dedicated to a sport
0: with great difficulty yeah (laughs) getting getting everyone (laughs) together a lot of the interviews... That's why I kind of used a common background with the black background with the jerseys because I knew it's, I'm going to have to do a lot of these interviews in one place. Yeah. And so some of the interviews took place during, uh, during a, a barbecue party. The, the, the party you see in the movie... about three or four of the interviews were done that day so i didn't get to enjoy that party as much as i would have liked but it was an opportunity i couldn't miss to get everyone together and then it was sporadically throughout a couple of months whenever they had time in their schedules and i had time because obviously as you even see in the film everyone has jobs everyone has families most i think 90 percent of the team have kids or multiple kids so getting them in one place is a very very challenging uh experience
1: how did you keep going while you were filming this because obviously it was filmed over a long period of time what were you doing you know daily to keep yourself afloat
0: i mean financially yeah uh it's a good question because uh yeah i was i was doing a lot of my other independent work that my paid work which is either portrait photography for for newborn babies or pregnancies weddings doing any kind of videography that i can things like that also at the time, I was still taking on jobs as, as, as an assistant editor. So the same kind of job I was doing in my previous full-time job, but just independently, uh, which was able to kind of finance me. I had a lot of support through my, through my mom, through some of the players. Also, I did a, a crowdfunding, which mm. brought in, I think it was nearly 2,000 euros, which really helped kind of get it over the line and keep me financially afloat while I was doing all this unpaid, uh, you know, voluntary filmmaking for, for the, the spirit of the game.
1: And what did you use to shoot the spirit of the game?
0: Uh, Spirit of the Game was shot mostly on a Canon 80D so it's a DSLR camera uh, some scenes are actually even shot just on my iPhone the uh, the scene at, at the party is all my iPhone uh, there's a couple of drone shots that were, were taken with a with a DJI Mavic Air and then I think a Panasonic GH5 was the, the second camera that, that James By was uh, shooting um, the television camera perspective of the, the final games
1: what is your plan with puckers? Like, if you're looking back this time next year, what would you like to have, have said about the spirit of the game?
0: Well, what what I would really love to come out of of the release of this movie is that it, the movie itself gains recognition worldwide. From me personally as a filmmaker, and then also for the ice hockey in Luxembourg in general, I would wish I would really like to see a lot more spectators coming to games of all the different teams. So, whether it's Beaufort Tornado, we have a Luxembourg women's team now. I would love to have more people come in there, and through that, you know, the the more money and support that comes from people into ice hockey in general, the more the puckers themselves will benefit. Whether it's a new ice rink, which is really my ultimate dream, is to encourage you know decision makers, lawmakers, and those with money to invest in a brand new ice rink that's sport specific, because a lot of the challenges we have not just with ice hockey but figure skating, speed skating, uh, curling, all these other things where we have to share this ice, we also have to share it with the public. And the public also is always going to bring in more money than the sports do. There's a situation where it's the public or it's the sports, the public is always going to take priority. And that's something where I would really like to see. You know, it's all well and good to have public uh, skating. You know, I absolutely love it. I do it myself. But if you want to improve the sports of luxembourg in general certainly in the winter sports there needs to be something dedicated to that
1: another thing that i was going to ask you was why did you decide to name the film the spirit of the game
0: i've been waiting for this question since yeah. i made <laughs> the movie uh and you're the first person to ask it Woohoo! the, the spirit of the game the, the spirit of the game actually comes from my time uh, playing ice hockey on the isle of wight uh, okay. the south of england so i played uh, junior ice hockey for two years with a team called the Wildcats. Uh, And in in this under-19 English division, every game you'd have two awards given at the end of the game. You'd have your man of the match for the best player of the game. So whether they scored the most goals or really the best on-ice performance. And then you'd have the Spirit of the Game award, which was always awarded to the player who showed the best sportsmanship. Whether you win or lose, and this is an award that goes out to both teams. It's treating the other team with respect and treating your teammates with respect and really bringing the spirit of the game and uh, I want a couple of those uh, that I've got at home so the, the name the titles the spirit of the game has always you know been in my mind and I just thought that when you're talking about the puckers and what it fundamentally means they always call it pucker spirit and what that is is that it's no matter who you are where you're which country you're from which age you have which sexual orientation no matter what who you are we accept you into this group the one of the main selling points for me for the film or one of the main, main pushes what I wanted to show is that not only is it possible to to create a team with all these different cultures but it's possible to have a successful team with all this cu- the, all these cultures and they actually they they benefit from the differences rather than having to they don't win in spite of the different differences they win because of the differences all the different cultures and playing styles and things that they've learned from their different experience whether it's Canada or Finland or you know Sweden or even you know rival countries rival team fans and things you can bring everyone together and you can be successful as long as you have the common goal
1: yeah and in a way this is a really original film because like Luxembourg for example has so many different nationalities and three official languages and the movie really showed that. It showed how many different nationalities there were and I loved how it was multilingual as well and you had the subtitles. What do you think about ori- originality in film? There is kind of an attitude of we've seen it all before. How do you keep your ideas fresh?
0: I think it's it's very difficult to to be, I don't think you can be 100% original. I don't think there's something, there's very little out there that you've never seen before. So I think as soon as you can accept that fact and You can take inspiration from from different projects and different movies. You don't necessarily have to make a carbon copy of it, but if you can take inspiration from other movies and just put a little bit of yourself into it, then that in itself is always going to be fresh in that kind of sense.
1: Because we're all here, really, because we love films and and cinema, and I was wondering, really, what kind of things you love in a movie. How did your love of movies get sparked, and and how can... You know, we follow that really
0: well. M- I'm very much my my love of music, movies is very much an escapism thing. I, I'm a very very big fan of the fantasy genre and the Lord of, of know, the Rings. Lord of the Rings, uh, sci-fi as well. So the Matrix, Star Wars, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, anything where it, you, I can take myself out of reality and. Become Im- emerged in in a fantasy, or, you know, where anything's possible, and anything that you can dream of or imagine, you can either see it or yeah. believe that you know it could be possible. Whether it's flying or there's superpowers or or anything like that.
1: Is it, there a movie out uh, currently that you've been like wowed by in 2019?
0: Uh, Avengers Endgame, absolutely. It's I think Marvel in general they they hit a home run almost every single film that they produce. I think even the you know the the lesser loved films shall yeah. we say like like uh Thor Dark World the second one even that i really really enjoy part i think it majorly has to do with their casting choices yeah. i think uh, if you get casting wrong it's no there's no matter how good the story is those performances need to be delivered and they have to be believable and you yeah. have to you have to relate to the characters especially in a in a fantasy sci-fi kind of thing where everything else is so unbelievable the core of the story and the people telling it have to still be human and very real
1: if you could remake one of the films what one would you choose ouch it doesn't have to be the avengers
0: uh, okay okay <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah. I'm st- stuck on marvel at the moment yeah me too well i always i grew up watching uh, the bfg the the animated series the animated yeah. film uh based on the Roald Dahl book and i've always loved that movie i I think it was made in the 1980s this animated feature and I even watched it the other day uh, because I still love it uh, to my core Uh, and there was I've always wanted to do a remake of that that's always kind of been like my fantasy to to remake the BFG and I was super excited when I found out that uh, Steven Spielberg was going to do a remake uh, I think it was in 2017 or 2018 with the same crew that made E.T. so that film came out and I I was a bit disappointed actually
1: I didn't even know it came out, which uh, it, I think it, says it something.
0: Check it out. It's if 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 you don't know the original cartoon, I think it's probably a pretty good film. It's more child friendly because it's not quite as scary with the characters and and the evil giants and things like that. But for me, that's what lacked. As as such a fan of the original, it didn't it didn't scare me as uh, grip me as uh, as the original did. And that that to this day, you know, even as a near thirty two year old, I can still watch uh, those those end scenes with the giants chasing Sophie and be, be on the edge of my seat. So I absolutely love that one.
1: And I think lastly, um, I just wanted to ask you what advice you'd give someone that wanted to have a lifelong career in filmmaking. What would you say if you wanted to be in it for the long run?
0: I would say if if you don't have any direct contacts within the industry and you don't have the opportunity to go straight onto a film set, like some people do very successfully, definitely go down the film school route. Check out uh, media colleges uh, or university degrees. I would definitely say if you're going to be a technician, a fil- filmmaker, cameraman or director or an editor, try to make sure that your course is more technical based. Yeah. I know there's a lot of courses that are artistic and, and theoretical and they, they have their merits of course as well. But you can talk about film and you can write about film all day long, but until you physically pick up a camera and things like that, I don't think you have an appreciation, even as a director, of how difficult things are. And yeah. I think that also, once you're on set, because you need to build a relationship with everyone around you and you have to respect everyone around you and know that even as the director or the star of the movie or the producer, there really is no star of the show. Because without everyone around you, you're 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 nothing. So I think really like a a technical film school teaches you that and shows you just how complicated and and difficult everyone's role is so you build a bit more respect I'd say once you get into the industry there are two paths you can go down if you know what you want to be if you want to be a director then you can really really focus on that and go all-in so make sure you're doing uh, classes to teach you how directing script writing it's but it's definitely also worthwhile taking a class or even experiencing what it's like to be a, an actor or same thing if you're a cameraman make sure that you're you have an ability at least a basic knowledge of editing and, th- and lighting and sound design because it also shapes a lot of the decisions you make mm. because again it's a group project even when it, a film like the spirit of the game where a majority of it was was my filmmaking i'm aware as a, as a technician i can't do everything so i need to have help I need to have people like James Baye, like Rita Asmanova and Willem Neumann that come in and, and really support me. And then I have to be able to tell them, okay, this is what I can't do myself. I need you to do this. Be versatile.
1: Be versatile. Yeah.
0: And if, if you're going to be an independent filmmaker like myself and you, you don't necessarily want to be pigeonholed as a director, yeah, be able to, be able to at least have a basic knowledge of every department. So that you can, if, if you need to shoot alone, you know how to set up uh, your microphones, a sound recorder, your basic lighting, things like that. And I think that makes you a bit more employable as well. I very rarely have one role that's, you know, consistent. I might be an editor in one film, I might be a director on another, or I might be just a, a second cameraman. But they all pay the bills, they all pay the way, and that's what you have to do at least. And certainly until you build a career and a reputation where you can focus and say okay now i'm just going to be a director finally the the, the cheesy uh stereotypical believe in yourself because there will there are certainly going to be times where there can be a lot of times where it's not going to work yeah there can be times where you're very very uh broke mm. <laughs> it's it's very difficult to make money especially nowadays in the sense where you know everyone out on the street has a 4k camera in their pocket so how you, you have to find a way to make yourself you know valuable yeah. why should people pay to have you make their project that when they could do it themselves you know? so keep going at it and yeah make sure you keep the love for it
1: well that's great advice be versatile keep going believe in yourself and all the best with the spirit of the game I'll definitely keep updated on on how it's doing i'm sure it'll do really well
0: at at the moment uh, i'm waiting for acceptance or rejection from a couple of film festivals in the united states a couple in europe and then i'm in talks with some television stations about how and where and when to be able to broadcast whether it's going to be television or video on demand things like that so i think very soon i would say definitely in the next couple of months uh, it should be accessible to everyone uh, around the world, either either on television, cinema, or online. Okay.
1: Cool. Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.